knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. And when Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, Tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, Yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, How is it that you have agreed together to test the Spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young man came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. Let's pray. Our Father, our loving God, magnificent and true, thank you for this day. We have nothing that does not come from you. You created all things for your glory. When we stop and think about these lives we are living and how this earth works, the stars, the planets, and how perfectly assembled and how controlled each needs to be, we can only glimpse a tiny portion of your majesty. And we can and should feel small. But God, you desire us, your creation, to be with you, to have a father-child relationship. Lord, you did the work to bring us to you. Our sin, our selfish desires, they separated us from you. Our sin that we could not fix, you fixed that problem. You sent your son Jesus to mend that broken relationship. He paid for our sin. We bring nothing. You provide it all. Glory to be our great God and all praises. They go out to you. Lord, we seek your blessing and your help. Help us to know you better. Holy Spirit, please bring an understanding of scripture to us and to Duncan this morning as he, as he speaks to us. Draw us closer to God. Do the work in our hearts this morning that only you can do. Lord, we ask for your healing on Brenda Jorgensen's nephew, Asher, and also on Jerry and Ruth Stepke, and on John Hickson. And we praise you this morning also for the quick recoveries of Scott Bird and Scott Fredrickson. Lord, we know that all things happen in your time, and we thank you for that. And we thank you for all we have and all we will have. In your son Jesus' name, amen. We're still in Acts, obviously, as this morning we come in chapter 5 to a major new development in the life of the church in and around Jerusalem, which is the only place where the church was at this time in Acts. For the first time in three chapters, the new church of Christ 
turns in five chapters, I should say. In the first three chapters, we see the church as the picture of spiritual power and blessing and peace. Chapter four, the opposition begins as the Jewish leaders start their persecution of the church by forbidding the apostles to preach in the name of Jesus. Further on in chapter 4, we see the apostles emboldened in their preaching as the saints pray for them. But as we come to chapter 5, we see the very first recorded instance anyway of what will become the most prominent ongoing challenge in the history of the church, at least for the last 2,000 years, and that is the reality and the power of sin. The two historic challenges that have faced the church in its history are persecution from without, which began in chapter 4, and corruption from sin from within, which rears its ugly head here in chapter 5. Those are the two historic battlefronts of the church. Satan and our sinful flesh conspire to work to not only infest each local church with unrepentant sin, but for all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus, we saw Satan also works to destroy the church by persecution from the world. As you read through the book of Acts, it appears, as we come here to chapter 5, it appears as if having failed in his attempt to weaken the church in chapter 4 by persecution from without, Satan works in chapter 5 to corrupt the church from within by these leaven of sin being introduced into the church by these two people, these two believers, assumedly, we're not sure, Luke doesn't say that, Ananias and Sapphira. The story for most of us is a familiar one. Ananias and Sapphira, like a few others in the church at that time, were able to sell their property. And they did sell some of their property and appear before the apostles to give to the church their proceeds of the property for distribution of the poor. The scholars tell us about 10% of the people in the church would have been practicing that. About 10% had the kind of wealth to be able to actually do that. And these folks voluntarily sold their property and gave their profits to the poor. We saw last week Barnabas sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. So this was evidently a fairly common practice among those who had means in the early church. But Luke reveals that unlike Barnabas, and as we said last week, clearly he's contrasting Barnabas in chapter 4 with these two in chapter 5, this couple's primary motivation or their concern was not in helping the poor. It was instead to bolster their reputation to the church, to make a name for themselves as genuinely, sacrificially generous people. Luke tells us that after they sell their property in a premeditated act, they agreed together to keep back some of the profit for themselves. Now, as Peter tells Ananias in verse 3 and 4, they were under no obligation to give any of the property or the money from the sale of the property, and certainly no pressure was exerted on them that they couldn't hold back some of it for themselves. The sin of these two is seen in the fact that they lie. They lie to the church, and therefore, as we'll see, to the Holy Spirit, by claiming to give to the Lord all 
of the proceeds of the sale, when in fact they were keeping back some of it for themselves. That's the problem. Because they were lying to make themselves look better than they were, they were, in addition to being liars, they were also hypocrites. Peter also implies that they were arrogant in thinking that they could conceal this sin from God. Let's just be honest about this text. In terms of the message for the church today, and frankly, 2,000 years, but especially today, this is one of the hardest texts in the New Testament, right here. Theologically liberal scholars have for decades called this account either a legend or they propose all sorts of ingenious ways to soften what Luke is clearly saying here. Luke's transparent meaning here just doesn't fit their tortured understanding of the Bible as a book where Jesus and the New Testament reveal God's love while the much more primitive and unenlightened Old Testament reveals a God of wrath. Luke's account of Ananias and Sapphira here in the book of Acts does not at all fit that viewpoint. This story sounds far more like the story of God's judgment on Aaron's sons Nadab and Abihu in Leviticus chapter 10. They don't like that. It doesn't fit the narrative. The most apparent problem with the liberal scholar's objection is there is no zero evidence that this story was not written by Luke. It's in all the manuscripts. And his account is recorded with such crystal clarity, there's simply no room for doubt as to about what his meaning is or what really happened here. But it's not just liberal theologians who study or struggle with this text sometimes. This, this story features the wrath of God. And it's hard to hear, even for those who take the Bible seriously as the Word of God, for several reasons. First, from a purely ethical perspective, this story is becoming increasingly hard to relate to because the world we live in, today anyway, is a world where deceit is commonplace and it rarely receives any kind of punishment, much less a lethal one. And that's the world we live in. Our politicians repeatedly, serially lie with great boldness, saying things that not only they know are false, but they know that you know are false. And they say them without any hope of ever being held to account, most of them. It's estimated that 90% of white-collar crimes amounting to perhaps $1.7 trillion a year go unreported every year. No accountability. We swim in a very polluted ethical ocean where an increasing number of lawbreakers are never held accountable for their deception. And from our no-fault, deception-riddled context, it's becoming more of a challenge even for believers to see how this offense could be worthy of the death sentence. I mean, God executes people who have sold their property and given some of it to the church. You could see it that way. Second, on a purely sentimental level, as we've seen the glory of God so clearly in this church in Jerusalem in such powerful ways, this text is hard to read because this is kind of 
it feels kind of like this is where the church loses her innocence. The truth is the church never was innocent, of course, but for the first time, Luke pictures the church as something less than this supernatural, soul-winning, miracle-laden, God-honoring spiritual dynamo. In chapter 5, we begin to see the dark side of the church that's going to figure so prominently as we move through the rest of the New Testament. A third reason this story is hard to read is because Luke gives his account without any sympathy or emotional attachment to these two people who are executed. This is so different than how people would frame this story today because we live in an age where personal responsibility has in many contexts almost completely been replaced by the notion that people do wrong things because they are victims of something. People do bad things because they themselves have suffered injustices of some kind. They're deeply wounded, and then that warps them, and it forces or compels them to act in ways that are hurtful. Today, the major opinion shapers encourage us to feel sorry for wrongdoers. That extreme therapeutic view of the world where the cause of bad behaviors is never a person's sin, but rather the unfortunate result of something that has happened to them in the past, that worldview is rampant in our culture. And when believers have been infected by that unbiblical understanding, which we can be infected by it and not really know that, then when we look at judgment texts like this one in the Bible, this is going to feel unjust to us. This is going to feel repulsive to us. Our present cultural context, where there are no bad people and no bad behaviors but only victims, make this particular text seem harsh because there is not a whiff of God treating these two people as victims deserving of his pity. He holds these two people absolutely accountable by killing them for their sin. And Luke preserves Peter's style of communication of these sobering events that can only be described as matter-of-fact. Listen to what he says to Sapphira. Behold, the feet of those who buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. And your recipe for macaroni and cheese is. I mean, <laughs> this is just so, it's cold. I mean, how do you like to have that as the last statement on earth that you hear? God's utterly politically incorrect perspective here is jolting. Ananias and Sapphira are full of satanically inspired sin that they bring into the church. They're publicly confronted. They're instantly executed. Period. End of story. The just judgment of God is quick. It's efficient. They hear God's sentence on their sin, and they instantly drop dead. That sounds hard. Fourth reason, and there's a reason why I'm going into all this, there's a fourth reason this is so hard to hear is because neither of these two are given a chance to recant or repent. Okay? Peter could have said to Ananias, Ananias, are you sure you're giving away the entire amount of the proceeds from your sale? He didn't. He didn't ask. 
There's no second chance here. Even more dramatically, Peter could have said to Sapphira, I'm so sorry to have to tell you this, Sapphira, but your husband Ananias is dead. He died about three hours ago when God executed him on the same spot that you are currently standing on. In fact, you didn't know, but you walked right by his grave as you were walking in. He died because he lied to the Holy Spirit about the percentage of proceeds you gave away from your sale of your property. Sapphira, we know you are a part of this. Is there anything you'd like to say? He didn't say that. Nothing. Peter just asked her to publicly confirm what has already been claimed, and that is that they sold their land for such and such an amount. Peter's concern could have been here, we don't know, to verify whether Sapphira actually was compliant in this lie or whether she was in some way coerced by her husband. Again, we don't know. Instead, there are no warnings, no threats, no chances to repent. They lie, they die. Another reason this story is difficult is because God's rare act of judgment in the Bible are always shocking because his mercy is so dominant. This act of judgment is sobering because it's administered in lethal doses and because God's justice is brought down on professed members of Christ's blood-bought church. Again, we can't know whether they were really genuine, born-again, regenerate believers, because Luke doesn't go there. The Bible never goes to that place, and we kind of want to know whether that's the case. But these are certainly professed believers, and they had experienced the powerful presence of God in the church in ways that nobody in this room has. Now, we know that Peter tells us later on in the New Testament, judgment begins with the household of God. But as fellow sinful believers, it's pretty jarring for us whenever that's played out in real life, as it is here in Acts chapter 5. Finally, this is hard because the immediate context of Acts that is filled with God's profound expressions of grace makes this act of judgment seem even more out of place here. In chapter 4, where Luke recounts these believers selling their property and giving the money to the poor, he explains all of that radical generosity by proclaiming in verse 33, great grace was upon them all. Now, by contrast, as we turn to chapter 5, there appears to be zero, zip, nada, forgiving grace or mercy. We're whipsawed by reading these two very different accounts on the same day of the church being filled with great grace to one where it's, you sin, you die. This is a violent, emotional change here. In light of how hard this is to read and appreciate, and I'm sure we could think of some more reasons, why? Why does God do this? And why does he do it in this way? What, what motivated him to do this at this particular season of the church? There are doubtless, I'm sure, many reasons that I don't know of, but let's just think about two for this morning. First, God judges Ananias and Sapphira to stifle the corruptive influence of Satan in the church. To stifle the corruptive influence of Satan in the church. God does this because he loves his bride. Let's never forget that. We know this is part of what is going on here because Peter confronts Ananias in verse 3, and he says, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart? 
or implied, why have you allowed Satan to fill your heart? <laughs> why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? Although God clearly holds Ananias responsible for his sin, through the Spirit, Peter sees the unmistakable influence of Satan here as well. The prince of darkness, we just have to presume, would have certainly been seething at this point at the impact of the early church on his kingdom, purging a lot of his people out. So he's doubtless waiting for some chance to defile the bride of Christ with sin. And he sees these two people filled with spiritual pride because they're yearning to be seen as generous by the church, and that gives him his opening. It's no accident that this first recorded successful temptation in the church is rooted in pride. That's how he started in the Garden of Eden, isn't it, with Adam and Eve, God's first expression of his kingdom. And this is where the son of Adam and this daughter of Eve in Acts 5 also fail. We know that Luke wants us to notice his wording here, describing Satan's influence. Look at this. He says that Satan had filled Ananias' heart to lie to the Holy Spirit. He's drawing a connection here between the filling of Satan with what he says in chapter 4, where in response to the prayers of the saints, the church is filled with the Holy Spirit. Same word. It's the filling of the Spirit that prompts the radical generosity in the church. When an author uses the same verb to describe the action of God and Satan within eight verses, he's wanting us to see that. God fills, Satan fills. In chapter 4, the believers are filled with, they're under, they're under the powerful influence, redemptively, of the Spirit of God. And the result is, they practice this extreme generosity in their giving. In chapter 5, this married couple is filled with, or under the powerful demonic influence of Satan, and they practice arrogant and rank hypocrisy. Luke wants us to see that both the good things the church did and the evil things practiced both are animated through the larger unforeseen spiritual kingdoms ruled by God and the demonic forces of evil. This is an outplaying of Ephesians 6.12. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. When the church is under the influence of the Spirit of God, she practices extreme generosity. She has a heart for the poor, and in doing so, reflects something of generosity that God showed when he gave his only son to the church. When those in the church are under the influence of Satan, they lie, and they commit other sins, reflecting the father of lies. This is a defilement of the bride of Christ, and one lesson from this text is God cares deeply for the purity of his church. In fact, he cares so deeply for it that he institutes church discipline for his people to keep us free from this kind of spiritual defilement. Deuteronomy 19 and 1 Corinthians 5 both identically state that this discipline is to purge the evil from your midst. The way unrepentant sin is dealt with by God's people is through this purging that happens through church discipline. In Acts chapter 5, God dramatically purges the sin himself as a reminder of just how serious he is about the purity of his church. 
God acts decisively and dramatically here as he initiates what will later on be practiced by local congregations, according to Matthew 18. But this isn't just a matter of God's desire to keep his church poor, as important as that is. God is also executing these two sinners in the New Testament as a reminder of the important truth that it is always God's prerogative to execute anyone who sins at any time. We mustn't ever forget that sin, all sin by nature, is a capital crime in God's court of justice. We know, we've said many times, that our sin is what ultimately kills us. We're spiritual beings. It goes back to Genesis. If we were perfect, we'd never die. A quote that I've given from R.C. Sproul before, but I can't find a better one. I'm going to give it again. It's from his book, um, The Holiness of God. He says, all men die. We're all under the death penalty for sin. We're all sitting on death row, waiting execution. The greatest mass killer of all times was not Adolf Hitler or Joseph Stalin. The greatest mass killer of all time is Mother Nature. Everyone falls victim to her. Mother Nature does not operate independently from God. She is merely the avenger of a holy God. That's a theologically accurate statement. This is not the only place in the New Testament where people in the church who are presumably believers are executed for their sin. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, some in the church at Corinth were abusing the Lord's table. Verse 22 says that they are guilty of despising the church of God, humiliating those who have nothing. Eight verses later, Paul prophetically declares, this is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. Now, those executions were not as dramatic, obviously, as Ananias and Sapphira's, but through the Spirit, Paul clearly reveals a cause-effect relationship between the unrepentant sin and their deaths. We must never forget that in God's court of justice, sin is a capital crime. And God judges Ananias and Sapphira for this sin because he has every right to do so as a holy God who hates sin. As we've said before, Jesus teaches in Luke chapter 13 that what should utterly amaze God's people is not that in his holy justice, God occasionally judges people for their sin by executing them. Jesus teaches that what should really strike us as far more amazing is that in his mercy, God allows the average sinner to continue to live. Jesus is talking to Jews who were speculating about what horrible deeds certain people must have done who had recently suffered well-known and violent deaths. They were gossiping about it. I wonder what they did to deserve that. And Jesus is hearing all of this, and he says, No, I tell you, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Sproul is right when he says, We soon forget that with our first sin we forfeited all rights to the gift of life. That I am drawing breath this morning is an act of divine mercy. God owes me nothing. God has every right to judge Ananias and Sapphira for their sin because as a holy God, it is right for him to punish sin of any kind, including ours. The biblical response of the church whenever Satan is invited into the church through unrepentant sin is clearly established here, and that is to confront the sin. Jesus teaches in Matthew 18, 
discipline the offending brother or sister. Luke 17 puts it as succinctly as any place in the New Testament. If your brother sins, rebuke him. If he repents, forgive him. Sin within the body of Christ must be rebuked. And God, having taught that through Jesus in Acts chapter 5, he dramatically demonstrates it here in this early instance of unrepentant sin in the church. The Reformers all agreed there had to be at least three things present for you to even have a church. One is the preaching of the word. Two, sacraments, what we would call the ordinances. Third, church discipline. You don't have church discipline. You don't have a church. According to the Reformers, and I think they're right. I think they're biblical in that because discipline is what God uses to keep Satan's influence in the church in check. A second and closely related reason God did this dramatic act of judgment could be stated this way. God judges Ananias and Sapphira to remind his people that he deserves our fear. This comes right out of the text. If we want to know why God did this, all we have to do is see what he accomplished through this. What did accomplish through this? God does all that he does for reasons. He's accomplishing something or some things most of the time. So what does this act of judgment accomplish in the church? Well, we see it, at least in part, in the church's response to both deaths. In verse 5, we read, When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last, and great fear came upon all who heard it. We see the identical result in response to Sapphira's execution in verse 11, where Luke records, and great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. So this fear spread to those outside the church who heard about the fact that sinners were dropping dead in the church. We know that God knew that this would be the impact of his act of judgment, so it's reasonable to assume that he did this to remind his church that he is a God to be feared. And this fear engendered by Ananias and Sapphira is not a cowering terror rooted in a fear of eternal judgment. This is an expression of deep, reverent awe for a holy God. In our current era of church history where God's holiness is wrongly set up as opposing his love, we need texts like this in the Old and the New Testament to remind us God infinitely loves you. Don't mess with him. He's not mocked. Love for Jesus and fear of him are not mutually exclusive. The same apostle who intimately leaned against the Lord's bosom in the upper room in John 13, the apostle John, is the same apostle who fell at his feet as though dead in Revelation chapter 1 when the glorified Jesus showed up. You can and you should be both intimate with and in awe of God at the same time. Do you know what we call that when we do that? We call it worship. That's what worship is. Being intimate with God should never mean that we relate to him as some overstuffed teddy bear from heaven, as some seem to think today. And fearing him does not mean that you're afraid to come into his presence and enjoy great intimacy with him. You just need to know who it is you're being intimate with. The Lord of hosts, the consuming fire. God wants both our fear and our intimacy. And that's not mutually exclusive, and we know it's not, because the cross 
is the perfect union of God's holy hatred of sin and his love for sinners. Because God loves us, he sent his only son to the cross. But because God is holy, he had to punish our sin in Christ. Christ crucified is the ultimate marriage of God's holiness and his love. And if you're here today and you've not placed your trust in Christ, you've not come to him and admitted that you are in no way good enough to be acceptable to him, if you haven't confessed that you are a sinner and your only hope is Jesus dying on a cross to pay the penalty of your sin, I, I strongly plead with you, do that today. Today is the day of salvation. See your sin and run to the cross for forgiveness. If you refuse to repent of your sin and come to Christ, then only the fearful judgment of God awaits you. As we close, let's just go back to one more reason why this text is so hard to read and I promise I'm going somewhere with this. Perhaps the biggest reason is because we identify so strongly with Ananias and Sapphira. They were deceptive in trying to make themselves look more generous, more spiritual than they really were to impress other people. Anyone in this room never done that? You know, telling someone that You've read the Bible through for years. And in your mind, you're knowing two years. <laughs> two. Two is plural. That's accurate. But what you're communicating to that person is not two years. What you're communicating is you're a serious student of the Bible. You're not. Two years is nothing. Or perhaps you tell someone that you're praying for them when, in fact, the pledge that you earlier made to pray for them somehow slipped your mind. But you say, thanks for praying for me. Oh, yeah, I pray for you all the time. You don't pray. You're not praying for them. You're just not wanting them to think you're a phony. Or how about communicating things to others to make them to believe that your walk with God is fine, when, frankly, you're a mess. And we've all been a mess. We're either in the valley, headed for the valley, or headed out of the valley. We live in a fallen world. And yet, so often, we plaster our face on for Sunday morning, and we're just fine. How many people come forward for prayer after the sermon? God hates lukewarmness, but if the Gospels and this story are any indication, he hates hypocrisy a lot more. If you played the hypocrite through any form of deceit, allow God to use this story to convict you. And if you're not walking closely with God, stop pretending you are. This is why you come to church. <laughs> so you can get help. So you can get encouragement. It's what the body of Christ is here for. Ask for someone to pray with you. Well, maybe hold you accountable. Talk to a trusted friend whose walk with God seems to be good or make an appointment with me or one of the other elders. Get help. James 4, 6, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. There's no reason to pretend in the body of Christ. God hates it, and it will only widen the gap. Finally, we have to see one more thing here that we've seen before, and we'll see it again, which means it's important, so we're going to talk about it again. That is, how believers relate to God is seen in how we relate to the church. And how believers relate to the church is seen in how we relate to God. You recall that Luke reveals... Back in chapter 4, 
and he quotes Psalm 2. And you recall that Luke reveals that in attacking and persecuting the church, the Jewish leaders were also attacking God. That's what his quotation from Psalm 2 meant. We saw that. Okay? When you attack the church, you're attacking God, and God sits in heaven and he laughs. We also mention the same truth from chapter 9 later on in the book of Acts, where Jesus confronts Saul of Tarsus on the Damascus Road for persecuting him, even though he'd been persecuting his church. The repeated lesson is clear. How we relate to God is how we relate to church. Well, here in chapter 5, the flip side of that truth is given. Here it's a matter of how we relate to the church is how we relate to God. Ananias lied to Peter about how much he had given his property for. Yet, how does Peter, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, confronting him? He doesn't say, you lied to me. He said, you lied to the Holy Spirit. Later in verse 4, Peter says about lying to him, you have not lied to men but to God. And of course, what he means by that is, you've not lied only to men. You lied to God in lying to the church. So the same intensely close relationship between the way you respond to the church as the way you respond to God is seen here, too, just on the other side of it. You lie to the church, you're lying to God. This is why it's so foolish to think that I can have one kind of relationship with God and a very different kind of relationship with the church. The two mirror each other. You can't relate one way to the body of Christ and a different way to the head of the body of Christ. May God give all of us the grace to respond biblically to our sin, to the church, and to our holy and merciful God for his glory and for our joy. Let's pray. Our Father in God, this is a humbling text, because we do relate so much to Ananias and Sapphira. And all we can do, God, is thank you for your mercy, which we get every day. Constant flow of mercy. And God, remind us through this rare, the Bible says, your judgment is a strange thing that you do. It's it's strange, it's peculiar, it's rare. Remind us through this rare act of your justice just how much mercy we get every day and make us thankful for it. Father, thank you that you love your church. Thank you that you are so concerned about the purity of your church. God, would you invest us with that same concern? And, and Father, we're just so grateful that you love your church and we pray that you would help us to be genuine. God, keep us from being hypocrites. God, you don't want us to wear a heart on our sleeve, but neither do you want us to hold our cards so close to the vest that nobody knows where we are with you. And Father, we confess we've all done that because we're so concerned about the opinions of others. God, would you liberate us from that? Would you please help us? For we ask it in Jesus' name, amen.